from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, we're on the road from the National Farm Machinery Show here in Louisville, Kentucky. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Another black swan event could impact glyphosate availability this spring. We have details. Supply chain chaos is also impacting equipment values and trends, and it could mean explosive prices again in 2022. China canceled soybeans from Brazil this week. Could that Chinese demand continue to come to the U.S.? That's in our marketing roundtables. And in John's world... Is the truck driver shortage a real thing? Now for the news. The effort to get chemical inputs this year is already hard enough, but an announcement this week from Bayer could add another layer of complication this year. Bayer announcing a supplier for its widely used herbicide glyphosate has run into technical problems, and that may hamper its abilities to get product out in the short term. The company said in a letter that a mechanical failure comes in addition to tight supply situation in global crop chemical markets, in part due to the global pandemic. It says its supplier is on track to restore production, and it has sourced additional materials in an effort to help manage the situation. A Bayer spokesperson declining to name the supplier or the ingredient at issue, but other companies are telling us that Bayer isn't the only company making glyphosate and they're telling farmers to check around, but some retailers telling us that it could be generic glyphosate impacted the most by this latest issue. Well, tensions continue to run high between Ukraine and Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin saying Moscow is ready for security talks with the U.S. and NATO. It comes as Russian military announced a partial troop withdrawal from drills near Ukraine. But the U.S. and NATO allies say they have not seen the evidence of a withdrawal yet. But they remain hopeful for a peaceful resolution to the standoff. Russia is the world's top exporter of wheat, while Ukraine is a significant exporter of both wheat and corn. There's worries that interference in shipments of wheat or corn because of a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine could make food inflation even worse, as global food prices are already close to 10-year highs. Well, a new report from the University of Wisconsin over ethanol is causing some controversy. The report says corn-based ethanol is actually worse for the climate than gas. The study published the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. The research was done by scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Center for Sustainability. It was funded in part by the National Wildlife Federation and the U.S. Department of Energy. It claims ethanol is at least 24 percent more carbon intensive than gas. It says that's due to emissions resulting from land use changes to grow more corn, along with processing and combustion. The Senate Environmental Public Works Committee holding a hearing about the renewable fuel standard just this week. In short, you've got a piece of work that's untethered from reality. You look at the totality of science and the consensus of EPA, Department of Energy's Argonne National Labs, California Air Resources Board, uh, De- uh, Oregon's Department of Environmental Quality, and of course, uh, many academicians and scientists. Ethanol is lower carbon than gasoline, and that advantage continues to increase. A representative for small refiners also addressing senators, expressing concern about the rejection of 65 pending small refinery exemptions by the EPA and the impact that could have on the industry. Small refineries do not oppose biofuels. Um, So biofuels that are lower emitting um, are not a problem. Where we depart is on um, the ability of everybody to um, share and the ability to blend or pay a reasonably high RIN prices. But I would say that we have commonality in 
um, wanting lower emitting biofuels. I think there's where we depart on that point also is um, on whether or not ethanol is in fact a lower emitting fuel. The new study is in direct contrast to a 2019 study from USDA, which found ethanol's carbon intensity was in fact 39% lower than gas. Well, concerns over avian flu are growing. That's as a case was confirmed in Kentucky just this week. A flock of about 240,000 chickens owned by Tyson Foods in Kentucky has tested positive for the highly lethal form of avian influenza. It's also been confirmed in a backyard flock in Virginia. Kentucky officials say the birds in their state were infected with the same H5N1 strain of highly pathogenic avian flu as the turkeys in Indiana that tested positive just last week. They said it's Kentucky's first outbreak of the highly lethal bird flu, which killed more than 50 million U.S. chickens and turkeys in 2015. Tyson says it is working with government authorities to prevent the disease from spreading. It's also heightened security measures at other farms. All right, that's it for the news. We need to take a quick break, but there was a massive winter storm that went across the country this week. What's in store next week? Well, Matt Yurasovic has a check of weather next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's February 22nd online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurasovic. Matt, snow all the way this week from Oklahoma to Michigan. Here in Kentucky, it was severe storms that we were keeping a close eye on. Does this active weather pattern continue into next week? Yeah, Tyne, that's right. I, I think it will be a very active week across the country, and that could be good news if we start out taking a look at our drought monitor because not much has changed really for the western half of the country and into the southern plains because we've been seeing these uh, exceptional drought conditions in certain spots, but still seeing severe to extreme drought conditions, especially in parts of Oklahoma, Texas, and back up into the northern Rockies as well. So we are going to get a little bit of help there out in the west, but a lot more moisture is going to fall really from Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas into the Midwest and off to the East Coast. So they are going to see some help from a lot of those drought conditions that are going on, especially right there along the Gulf Coast. If we take a look at the jet stream heading through the day on Sunday, look at those lines almost parallel, very zonal flow here. That's going to keep it very mild in much of the country, but also allow for some cold air to be locked up there along the northern tier. As we head into next week though, what you're going to notice is we're going to see that warm air come into the southeast, but notice that big jet stream taking a dip back there into the southwest and that right there is going to bring the chance for some chillier air, some mountain snow and a little bit of rain out there in the west as well. So we will get a little bit of help from this and as we head through next week into the second half, a couple of storm systems look to be riding right up that front. Colder air to the north means we could see still some wintry weather and then warmer air to the south means that we could see some thunderstorms down there, some heavier rain possible, especially across the Mississippi River Valley up through Middle Tennessee and into the Mid-Atlantic states as we head through Friday. And then the warm air looks to return back to the west as we head into next weekend. Meanwhile, staying pretty chilly there across the north and east. So here's a look at Monday, February 21st. We've got a lot going on on this map, a low moving across the Great Lakes. And then we've got another low going to be bringing a lot of moisture out of the Gulf. This is the start 
of a multi-day system where we're going to be looking at snow to the north, rain and storms to the south, staying very mild back in the west. But notice that chilly air and those lows moving across the Rockies going to bring in some of that higher elevation snow and some of those showers at the lower levels. Then as we move toward Wednesday, the map. This is where that storm system starts to move to the east. The first of two, the second one down here, just gathering steam. Meanwhile, just a little bit of moisture still back there in the west, but high pressure in control up there in the center of the country, staying pretty chilly. And then here comes that second system. This one looks to be a little bit bigger towards the end of the week where we're going to be looking at rain, ice and even some snow. And we're going to be seeing that cold air in behind that system as we head through this week. And if we look at the temperatures this week, it is going to be very chilly back there to the west temperatures expected to be below normal and we're above normal out ahead of those systems and above normal with regards to that precipitation where we are going to see those storms move through the area. That's a look around the country time. We'll send it back to you. All right, thanks Matt. Well, volatility, it was the name of the game again this week when it came to soybean prices, but is it still all about Brazil? We'll have Matt Bennett, Andrew Jackson, and Alan Hoskins that join me for a marketing discussion from right here at the National Farm Machinery Show next. U.S. Farm Report on the Road at the National Farm Machinery Show is brought to you by New Holland, your partner for every season. Visit NewHolland.com to learn more and by FBN. Maximize your farm's profit potential. Visit FBN.com. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend from National Farm Machinery Show. Andrew Jackson, Alan Hoskins, as well as Matt Bennett joining us for the panel this weekend. Boy, some volatility again this week. Matt, I know I saw some news that China canceled some, some beans from Brazil because they were too expensive. You know, some news that, that China continues to buy from the U.S. But is it South America? Is that the main driver of soybean prices right now? Yeah, I think the main driver is going to be uh, what's going on down there. Whenever you look, for instance, USDA comes out on the February report with a 134 million metric ton estimate. Uh, Conab comes out the next day with 125. We've seen as low as 122. Uh, the difference between USDA and Conab with 9 million metric tons is essentially the U.S. carryout. Whenever you're looking at over 300 million bushels with 9 million metric tons. So uh, there's no question that uh, that final number is going to be quite important and it's going to be interesting to to see because quite frankly the USDA is the highest uh, amongst all those agencies whenever you're including the South American ones. Yeah, and you know, we got that CONEV forecast last week, you know, when we had Dan Bossi on the on the round table and, and he had said he had just been to South America, he had seen some some issues. But do you think USDA next week we have our, our Ag Outlook Forum from USDA? I mean, Andrew, typically it's not a market mover, but considering right now all the focus on what little change or big change are we going to see, do you think we could possibly see some market action out of this, this outlook next week? Yeah, typically this is a report that uh, we look at for about 10 minutes and then we move on with our lives. But, you know, we're already on pins and needles. Uh, this isn't a, you know, a 2018 or 2017, you know, the market is just kind of sludgy and at a standstill. So uh, volatility, you said it earlier. Uh, so it, it doesn't take much to get traders excited for, for stops start getting hit and, and for us to move hard in one direction or the other. 
Alan, there is a lot of noise. There is a lot of, you know, excitement, like I said, on pins and needles is, is how Andrew put it. So now as you're talking to farmers, you're looking at operating loans right now that, that uh, you're having those conversations, really looking at making a game plan when there's a lot of uncertainty in 2022. Mm -hmm. What's your advice to farmers to kind of block out some of that noise and do what they do best? Well, exactly right. Block out the noise, sit down and run your cash flows. Understand that we are going to see swings this year in the prices without a doubt and make sure these cash flows are going to be dynamic to the point that run them with the higher estimated prices run them with the lower understand what your risk levels are factor your crop insurance into that well matt last week on the show we had somebody that said you know they think that that we could see beans get to 17.95 talked to a farmer last week he said you know i've booked some new crop beans some old crop i mean just at unbelievable prices prices i didn't think we could get so right now, what should a marketing game plan be considering we are talking about some explosive prices, yet today we're looking at prices that are stronger than, than what a lot of people had forecast at this point. You know, what should a marketing game plan be? I, I, I think we all need to understand it has to be flexible. You have to have flex this year. There's no doubt that this market has an extremely dynamic capability. Whenever you're looking at the South American issue, I mean, you're pulling potentially 30, 35 million metric tons out of the world ledger, which is gonna force demand uh, eventually to make an adjustment. But whenever we've got the animals on feed worldwide that we currently have, you could have some extreme swings in the market. So one thing I've said is that it looks like 22 could be a fantastic year. We all know that 21 was a really good year. Uh, but 22 uh, will be a fantastic year as long as we don't screw it up. Well, and I mean, the input, you just look at it. We had some more news on glyphosate this week, so there is a lot of uncertainty there. But, Andrew, as we see prices climb, I mean, do you think it's, you know, what point could we see some demand destruction take place? Or at this point, because balance sheets are so tight, do you think maybe that that is not as much of an issue right now? Well, I, high prices cure high prices. We all know that. I think you're already seeing some level of demand destruction. I mean, if you just let's just use common sense. If you got a chance to buy something today for or buy something tomorrow for a price that's a buck thirty a bushel cheaper, what, are you going to wait? Well, that's what the market's telling. That's what the market, the soybean market's saying to do. Wait on the soybeans. Uh, we just heard this week uh, about some you know Chinese cancellations out of Brazil. Um, so. The, the buyers are going to go to either the cheapest market or you know it may just be waiting till a different window and the futures market is telling you know wait until after July to buy hold out if you can well and you know when you were, we're looking at these forecasts Alan there is a lot of uncertainty a lot of uncertainty with planning you can't pencil in some input prices because you can't even be guaranteed availability mm -hmm. so what's your advice for farmers right now when you're saying listen you've got to know production costs you've got to know all of this but sometimes that, that's not easy right now. That's absolutely right. It isn't easy. And what I would say is use the best numbers you can, but then shock it. Shock it 5%, 10%, because we don't know what that number may end up doing. And what Matt said is right. We've got to be flexible this year and got to be prepared for those changes. All right, well, the acreage debate is, is heating up, so we need to talk corn prices, we need to talk wheat prices, but also feed users. We'll look at the livestock side. We need to take a break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, from CDL changes to vaccine mandates, a shortage of truck drivers has really been impacting the supply chain lately. But is it really a shortage of drivers? John Phipps joins us now for John's World. By now, most of us are aware of the truck driver shortage. In fact, we even know the number, 80,000. 
But I was curious, and I discovered several reasons to doubt that claim. First, there are three and a half million truckers, or 1.5, depending on how you define it, in the US. It's one of our largest occupations. The shortage then would be either two or five percent, which doesn't sound all that dire. Shortage numbers come from trucking companies, not the Labor Department or third-party economists. In fact, in 1990, carriers claimed a 450,000 driver shortage. In 2012, they warned that the shortage was 200,000. Now it's 80,000? If these numbers are true, either the problem is solving itself or trucking companies make numbers up. Consider, too, some 10 million Americans hold valid CDLs and states issue 450,000 more each year. So qualified potential workers are plentiful, and this surplus helps keep wages lower. The average employee turnover at trucking companies is 90 to 95 percent a year, which should be a hint about the roots of the problem. Carriers needed an enormous supply of rookies to fill the in their huge losses. And by claiming a shortage, more subsidies from the government for training are possible. If there were a shortage, trucker wages would be rising, and that doesn't appear to be the case. Here are two charts showing how wages are responding to this shortage. Neither indicates a wage increase due to driver demand, largely because of that oversupply and driver churn. If you are a self-employed trucker, this oversupply means bidding for jobs is brutally competitive. U.S. ports are seriously undersized, even as our trade increases. Many of those 80,000 are likely sitting in a line someplace at any given moment. Thousands of drivers are waiting for container loading or unloading. But if you own a port, long truck lines are great for business. Our highway infrastructure has not kept up with truck traffic either. There are far too few truck parking lots, for one example. Summing up, I agree with this quote. The shortage narrative is industry lobbying rhetoric, said Steve Vaselli, a labor expert at the University of Pennsylvania who previously worked as a truck driver. There is no shortage of truck drivers. These are just really bad jobs. Thanks, John. And remember, if you have questions or comments, you can email John. That's at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, machinery repeat. Use Tractor Tales this week. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're going to journey to Illinois to check out a 1957 Oliver Super 88. It was the first one I done back in 1990. It's kind of been my pride and joy. Uh, it has power steering and a tachometer on, which most of the old tractors didn't have on. So that was an extra option, especially the power steering. That's, that's really a given. Universal tractor that really runs good, and it's got over 5,000 hours on, and run, runs just super. I did have parked at home in uh, corn crib and uh, brother-in-law, he was uh, putting beans in the crib and he forgot to close the hatch underneath. So they uh, run 
truckload and a half of beans on top of the tractor. It was clear up to the exhaust and couldn't find the seat at all. And yeah, that was one of them things that when you're in a hurry, somebody always forgets something. That was kind of a disaster, but he had a green vac come in and I blew off with an air hose at the same time and it started right up and didn't bother it one bit. It's been a trouble-free tractor. I really uh, haven't had to do squat to it. It always starts any time of the day, any year. Uh, never had a bit of trouble with it. And I like to drive it as good as any of them. Well, one Minnesota dairy was faced with a tough decision, either get bigger or get out. And that decision was visionary. We introduce you to the 2022 Top Producer of the Year next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, in Minnesota, Todd and Louise Malika, before making a decision, always ask one question. How can we add value to other people's lives? That, combined with their focus on family, created a groundbreaking operation that this week was named the 2022 Top Producer of the Year. Clinton Griffiths has their story. A quick stop to see Todd and Louise Mollica in Villard, Minnesota, and you'll find a farm rooted in family. I've had to learn how to do this to balance between work and family. It's something that isn't easy to do. Louise grew up on a dairy along with her 13 siblings. Todd also grew up on a dairy after his parents decided to escape the city. My mom and dad moved up here in 1973. His dad seized an opportunity to buy land he started a farm strong enough to weather the financial crisis of the 1980s. I remember it well. And that's when my dad, because of he had almost zero debt, that's when my dad really was able to purchase land. Growing at a time when others were forced to leave farming helped build a foundation strong enough for Todd to start his own operation after returning from the military. I got out of the military and had money in the bank and uh, <laughs> was able to uh, pay cash for 13 cows. In 1989, Todd met his wife Louise, and together, the dairy started to grow. Louise and I worked on the farm. My dad just saw the things that we were doing and things that were happening, and he allowed Louise and I to leverage his land to build the dairy. They started a family while juggling the day-to-day -day with the cows. We actually were milking in two different places and we decided well if we're gonna either get bigger or we're gonna go out of it and we decided to go larger. And that's what they did all while homeschooling now seven kids. Today they milk about 1,200 cows or raising about a thousand replacement heifers. They farm 2,500 acres and custom farm thousands more. There's also a precision lagoon pumping business and a sand and gravel pit. Plenty for the next generation to grow. From social media and marketing to managing the calves, five of their seven kids remain active in the operation, which today is as diverse as their children's abilities. We have dairy, 
We have cropping, we have custom work, but then we also have a gravel pit. Todd says each piece of the operation is a complement to what they've always done. But our custom work, you know, we do a fair amount of straw baling and then forage harvesting. They're also cultivating a culture that's helping build success. I have a simple saying and a simple saying is this, good people attract good people. From their lenders to accountants, on and off the farm, this team is thriving. We were at, like at a pivotal point and we came across um, transition point business advisors. And in 2011, the Molokas identified values that set a foundation for growth. It's about integrity, empathy. We have to, through empathy, we not only have to know how the person is feeling, but more importantly, how our customer is feeling. Put ourselves in their shoes. Ultimately, it's the people propelling this farm forward. In life, proximity is power. The people that we surround ourselves with, I know they're better and smarter than me in so many different ways, especially in their own area. One family pursuing one mission with eyes on the future. It really fills your heart when you can see your own generate, your next generation coming involved and taking up the reins. Congratulations to the Molokas, a finalist for the 2022 Top Producer of the Year. Thanks, Clinton. And you can learn more about their story as well as see what's in store this week for Top Producers virtual event. Just scan the QR code on the screen and it will take you to the site that you can register or to learn more. All right, when we come back, commodity prices really are at the center of focus as our supply issues heading into planting season. We'll cover it all again with our marketing analysts when we come back. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by February 28th with coupon code USFR for free shipping. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the National Farm Machinery Show is brought to you by New Holland, your partner for every season. Visit NewHolland.com to learn more and by FBN. Maximize your farm's profit potential. Visit FBN.com. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, we talked a lot about soybeans and demand and that really in the first marketing roundtable. But let's shift to corn now as we see this acreage battle heat up. Uh, you know, talking to some farmers here that are saying, listen, even with nitrogen issues, I think I'm going to switch to beans, but then I'm having issues with, with glyphosate, the latest news, glufosinate prices, things like that. So as we look at this acreage battle, it could be the most interesting acreage battle we've ever had. But what are you favoring right now as far as acreage numbers go, Matt? You got to keep something in mind. We started with 180 last year. We've got over 2 million more acres of wheat this year that are going in the ground that we already know of. We know cotton acres are going up. And so you've got to ask yourself how much above 180 could we see? Because some of these survey based approaches have been talking 182, 183. And I think that's going to be a big struggle. So I'm going to start with 180 combined. And I guess my personal opinion is that if I didn't get my anhydrous ammonia on last fall or my nitrogen source, uh, because of whatever reason it might be, 
you better be in a really good production area where you've got good APH and a good assurance that you're going to be able to raise the yield that you need because you're going to be putting $1,000 an acre most likely into a corn crop and you've got to have some assurances there. So I do think that the fringe areas, you could lose some acreage. If I was going to pinball it right now, I'd say maybe we've got a few more acres than corn of corn than beans, uh, but I do think that that uh, is going to add up to 180, so maybe 90 and a half and 89 and a half. Well, Andrew, I mean, you know, every year we're talking to farmers, okay, what are your acreage? And a lot of times it's, well, I'm going to stick to my rotation, stick to my rotation. There's a couple layers in this year that are, that are kind of being the deciding factor. But as you look at acres right now, especially in areas like Kentucky, do you think we will see a big shift this year? I think Kentucky is going to see a shift uh, to, to soybeans away from corn. That's um, my opinion. Now, overall, I agree with Matt. I'm, I'm kind of starting at 180 uh, combined, and I'm thinking more like, you know, a, a 91 and a half, 88 and a half is kind of my split there. But I see marginal acres in Kentucky. Why take the risk? We've got a real good soybean market here. Uh, now, I'm hearing guys in, in, in the black dirt area saying, hey, uh, you know, I states are going to slam in the corn. And I get that, but I think there. I think every operation is different. At what point? At what price did you book your inputs? Are you booked yet? Uh, you know what? What kind of soil types do you have? You know what is you know what is your yield potential on corn? What is the potential downside if you have a, if it's a little bit dry? Because you've got more risk on the table than you've ever had this year. There is a lot of risk. And Alan, when you're talking to farmers right now, mm -hmm. are you seeing them favor? You know, you talk to a lot of farmers all over. Are you seeing them favor one crop over over another? I would say as a whole, most farmers are doing a good job in looking at what they can do from a profitability standpoint. They're exploring both sides of the equation. And the one thing that I say that I really think they need to think about this year, make sure you're not running these cash flows by yourself. Make sure you're getting value out of your banking relationship. It's not the year to try to do it on your own. Make sure you use that network that's available to you. Matt, corn demand's been pretty good this year. I mean, it's, you know, somebody put it as it's firing all, on all cylinders. It has been that way. Are you concerned that there is some risk when it comes to the demand side of corn? Yeah, and so whenever you look, for instance, at ethanol grind, we continue to see that we, we bumped up on a wall here in the last uh, several weeks, and a lot of it has to do with logistics. Not being able to get rid of the ethanol whenever your ethanol plant's full uh, restricts how much you can grind every day. And so I definitely feel like there's a little bit of a, of a, of a, a restriction there. But whenever I look over at the export side of things, you know, I've got to think that there's potential. We could see some growth there through the rest of this marketing year. Right now, the USDA is using a 1.54 on carry. I've got to think that we're going to be sub 1.5 easily, uh, but I don't know that I would be drastically, uh, I don't think I could get under 1.4 currently. I do think that there's a reason to be uh, very uh, optimistic whenever you're looking towards exports, though. But speaking of movement of grains, I mean, you look at low river levels right now. Has that been a barrier? I mean, are there issues right now moving our exports down these main shipping veins? You know, one of the greatest, one of the biggest talking points I've heard about barge movement specifically, we're on the Ohio River, you Kentucky guys, you're familiar with those markets, uh, is the staffing issues. Uh, one guy on a boat, on a tow gets COVID, the whole thing's disbanded, okay, and, and you got to start all over. So barge movement has been really bad. Uh, I would say in this area right here, we're 20 cents below normal basis uh, on, on, on corn. Um, and a lot of that has to do with barge freight is that's such a premium up front. And if you look forward, it's, it's a little cheaper because we keep thinking, we keep thinking it'll get better. But so, and, and it has come down a little bit, but overall, barge movement has definitely affected things. There's still demand at the Gulf. Those bids are still inverted. Uh, real quick on cattle, Matt, you know, this year have seen some, some positive forecasts when it comes to cattle prices. We've seen some positive movement when it comes to the sale barn and seeing some of the cash trade when it comes to cattle. Uh, you know, looking at our dwindling supplies, do you think that continues to be a theme this year? 
Well, I think so. And I think any time that you see some, our exports at times have run really strong whenever it comes to cattle. Demand's been really strong. We've tried to kill uh, beef demand or said that it was going to die over the last couple of years for a variety of factors, and it never really has. And so anytime folks have a fair amount of money in their pocket, uh, they're going to go out and, and eat a steak uh, like a couple of us did last night. So I, I think that uh, you're going to see beef demand stay very strong. And with cattle numbers where they're at, I still think that we see $150 fats over the next couple, three months and that's not that far-fetched looking at the board today. All right, Matt, Alan, Andrew, thank you for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report. Welcome back. Well, there are 1.2 million female farmers in the U.S., but for one farmer in North Carolina, she doesn't want to be known as a female farmer. She wants to be known as a farmer, and she's doing that by blazing her own path while leaving her mark. And this week, she was named a 2022 Top Producers Trailblazer Award winner. 45 miles east of Raleigh, you'll find the crops cured by tradition. For us, it's what we do. That's what you do in this area. Tobacco, once a staple on every farm in North Carolina. Almost everybody that farms around here has tobacco. Now, it, it has changed over the last few years, especially since the buyout. While Susan Weaver Ford's family has nurtured these soils for six generations, tides of change have been a constant. And I enjoy it. I mean, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than doing what we do right now. Susan, a conduit navigating uncharted waters from the family farm. I'm the one that's a full-time farmer. My husband's the one that's a full-time teacher. A full-time farmer, Susan is the first female to hold such a role in this multi-generational operation. A lot of people get a kick out of that that, you know, in, in the old world, I would have been the teacher, he'd have been the farmer. Instead of farming with her husband, Susan farms with her father, Ray. And if you ask her how the operation is split. That's kind of a tricky question. Susan manages all of the tobacco contracts and sales, prices the grain, the farm inputs, and remains an integral part of the production team, from planting to harvest, working closely with her father. He has his crop and I have my crop, but we share equipment, we share labor, and producing results is exactly what Susan does best. She's good, yeah. She don't mind work, she put her, she, she, she get it done. With a mix of tobacco and grains, the next generation is also bringing livestock back to a farm that was once a family dairy. 13 year old and 12 year old girls and then I have a seven year old little boy. Together, Susan is teaching her children that good management combined with resolve and perseverance are forces for success. The first, you know, parcel of land I bought, actually I bought it and it got back into our family. And you know, you just get a little sense of pride of being able to get back in your family something that, you know, your ancestors had already owned. A pursuit she plans to pass on as a legacy to her own children as Raleigh continues to grow and encroach on this fertile North Carolina ground. To be able to buy that land and know, as long as you can pay for it, that it's gonna remain farmland, you know, it's just, just makes me feel good at the end of the day. As for Ray. Oh, it means everything to me. She, she's everything to me. I'm proud of her, very, very proud of her. And for Susan. That probably makes me feel better than actually winning the award knowing he's proud of me. A foundation firm in faith and family, driven by Susan's passion to propel this farm into the future. I hope that at least one of my children, of the three, I hope at least one of them uh, I love it enough to come back and, you know, at least be able to work with me and take it over one day. 
Congratulations to Susan Weaver Ford, Top Producers 2022 Trailblazer Award winner. Now, Susan this week was at Top Producer Seminar along with her dad, her mom, and her daughter. And she just said it was a surreal experience and she was humbled by the honor this year. All right, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, John Phipps. Manure versus commercial fertilizer. From pork to poultry to beef, Kentucky produces a wide range of livestock. And it's livestock that's the topic of customer support this week. Good question from Gary Morrison. Recently, I was watching a discussion with a staff member from UC Davis. They were discussing the effects on our environment if we quit eating meat. It isn't going to happen. The subject came up as to the loss of natural chemical fertilizer and how the loss of that would affect crop production. What do you think is the percent of manure versus chemical fertilizer? I have been involved in the livestock industry all of my life, but I would think that the percentage would be very minor. Well, thanks for the question, I think. Please send me an address. Uh, this turned out, Gary, to be one of those dreaded story problems. Here we go. According to the USDA, 15.8 million acres have manure applied to them. This represents about 5% of U.S. cropland. Now, how much is applied? The best I can tell you is between 1 to 2 billion tons. It depends on how you measure the liquid fraction and about 20 other variables. My numbers worked out to around 60 tons per acre, which seems unlikely to say the least. So much of that total may be from range animals, for example. Then we get to the really tricky part, the NPK composition of various species wastes. After an hour of searching, I had either found long eye-glazing reports from ag researchers or quick and easy tables for gardeners. Well, that's my time limit for these kinds of questions, so here are my best guesses. Poultry manure, NBK is 332, swine 0.8.5.7, and cattle 321. This is percentage by weight. Now, according to experts at ISU, typical hog slurry yields about 50 pounds of N per thousand gallons using a density of nine pounds per gallon. This would be 50 pounds per 9,000 pounds of manure, or 0.6%. So the table is at least in the ballpark. As for commercial fertilizer, about 22 million tons are used each year, but the breakdown of the types is even harder to find. So comparing the nutrient application of manure versus fertilizer frankly stumped me. Therefore, a reasonable guess would be around 5% of applied fertilizer is manure. This is based on the acres applied I mentioned at the beginning. What is important? is while ending meat consumption would have a tiny effect on crop production due to manure loss, it would have a cataclysmic impact on crop production due to the loss of demand for feed. But when we come back, supply chain issues really are creating uncharted waters when it comes to used equipment values. We get insight from Machinery Pete next. I'm talking with a lot of farmers here at National Farm Machinery Show this week. It doesn't matter if it's new or used, it's sometimes difficult 
finding equipment right now thanks to supply chain issues. And the impact that it's having on the used equipment market means prices could be explosive again this year. Well, I tell you, 2022 is off to a more explosive start than any of us could imagine. I mean, there was a strong school of thought that when uh, 21 wound up and we took out the, the year-end tax-motivated buyers that, and the calendar flipped, that things would have to kind of, kind of cool off a little bit or kind of uh, be temperate for a little bit. And actually, the complete opposite has happened. Throughout January through mid-February, prices have gone higher and it's, uh, this, that train is picking up speed by the day. It's, it's, it's actually unbelievable. As the supply chain continues to be a driving factor in equipment values today, Machinery Pete says the industry is in uncharted waters right now with the tightness on dealer lots. The tractor market is on fire, particularly larger horse tractors. If you talk smaller horse, there's more manufacturers, you know, the Mahindras, the Bransons, the Montanas. So you, few, you see a few more 21, 22 models available. Uh, use values are still strong, but availability, I mean, you talk, uh, you know, grain trailers, uh, livestock trailers, uh, this time of year planting equipment. I mean, we're seeing just astronomically skyrocketing prices on seed tenders, good use planters. Um, to be honest, there really are no soft spots in the used farm equipment market now, and that's the first time in my 32 plus years I've ever been able to say that. Well, as always, Greg, just, just such a nice job of really dissecting the factors at play, but also looking at trends in the used equipment market. Thank you so much, Greg. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend from the National Farm Machinery Show here in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you so much for joining us. We will hit the road again as next week we will bring you the show from the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo in Fargo, North Dakota. We hope you join us as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.